Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for another opportunity to gather with your brothers and sisters in Christ that you've given us that, that love you and that together we want to pray together and encourage one another. We want to break bread together as we have communion. And Lord, be taught the Word of God as we together learn to grow in grace and knowledge to be more like our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray for those around the world who listen to the services on the Internet. Lord, we pray for them that you would encourage them and enrich their lives spiritually as the truth of the Word comes to them. And we reach out to them and pray for them as well. And Father, we commit this morning to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. We moved our sounds up to there, so I think it's better now. Does it sound better? Yeah, we were having all kinds of trouble with echoey feedback, everything else. So if you see Norm, thank him. He's not here today, but Norm ran a wire up through the ceiling and down into the other room so we could use the, the audio off of the video wall. So uh, we'll get this figured out yet. I shared an email with... Uh, who did I send it to? Was it the CIC board? Yeah, I send it. Sometimes I get email feedback from people that are around the world that listen to us. And I sent this particular one to the CIC board, and, and they suggested that the answer that I gave them would be something that you might be interested in. Uh, I, had, I had gotten an earlier email from these people that are from the U.K., and, they've, and they had been listening to the CIC MP3 files, and trying to get their theology and their doctrine right, the way it should be. And, uh, and so I sent them a bunch of answers, and then they came back with another question. So I'll read their question and then my answer, and then we can discuss it if you want. Um, for the attention of Mr. Bob DeWay, once again, thank you for your help. We have downloaded all the MP3 files from CIC Radio and are working our way through them. We have a number of people who are waiting for us to minister to them, but we have a few more questions we would like to ask you as we do not want to proceed until we are sure that we are ministering in line with Scripture. We would be very grateful if you would spare a few moments of your time. When a person comes to Christ, we do not lay hands on them to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Conversely, it is the practice in mainstream churches in the U.K. to do just that. Is our understanding correct? To be filled with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5.18, the practice in the U.K. is to lay hands on someone or that person asking the Lord to fill them with His Spirit. Could you confirm your understanding of this scripture? Do you have any uh, teaching material on anointing with oil and prayer for the sick, James 5.14-16? Again, in the U.K., there's no teaching on this subject because the practice is to lay hands on the sick for healing. We understand that the laying on of hands is appropriate when you are praying for someone to receive the gift of the Spirit or ordination of an elder, can you confirm that? So, okay, they're asking basically, what is the biblical teaching on laying on of hands? So here was my reply. Here's what I said. You are correct. All Christians are baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ when they are saved. Subsequent infillings are possible because in Acts it tells of the Holy Spirit filling people often, including the apostles after Pentecost. So be filled with the Spirit is telling us to walk in the 
a way that shows that the Holy Spirit is at work and does not depend on the laying on of hands. The case in Acts 8 where the apostle laid hands on newly converted Samaritans probably had to do with indicating that they recognized the Samaritans as truly Christian given the fact of Jewish prejudice against the Samaritans. God purposely did not pour out the Spirit on the Samaritans until the apostles arrived so that the whole church would see that God saved Samaritans too. So I consider that a special case and not normative. The laying on of hands has to do mostly with ordination or demonstration of approval for ministry, like in Acts 6.6. When Ananias laid hands on Paul, it was not just for healing and receiving the Spirit, but an indication that the previous persecutor of the church was accepted into Christian fellowship, Acts 9.17. In Acts 13.3, the laying on of hands had to do with sending people off on an approved mission. There are a couple of cases of Paul laying hands on and people receiving the Spirit or being healed. After Acts, laying on of hands, as mentioned in Timothy, was about ordination, in my opinion. The miracles done, quote, by the hands of the apostles were signs of the apostles and not normative for us. We are not apostles. I do not think that now we ought to assume we must lay hands on people to receive the spirit or spiritual gifts. But I see no reason that when we do anoint with oil to pray for the sick, that we cannot also lay hands on them. Assuming that the ending of Mark 16 was not in the original version of Mark, we have no command to lay hands on the sick. But then I do not see it forbidden either. But we must be careful not to dip into the pagan idea that we are transferring some sort of power or spiritual innocence energy from us to someone else by the practice. The Lord is the one who heals and gives the Spirit, and He does not need us as conduits. The, Lord, uh, the laying out of hands is a symbol of God's authorization, not a conduit for spiritual power to flow. So if we lay hands on, when we pray, we are indicating acceptance of the person, and, and we believe that God has authorized us to pray for such a person in the manner we are, we are not doing therapeutic touch or spiritual energy transfer. <laughs> I hope this helps. <laughs> so anyhow, I think, Dick, did you suggest that I, or somebody did, or Sam? Yeah, Sam. You're the one who suggested that people would be interested in this. So I thought that was a good idea. I, I hope you are. Does anybody want to discuss uh, this laying on of hands? Do you have any questions about it? Uh, yeah, Bill. Uh, well, this is just a suggestion, but you know, uh, yes, on. It, it would be nice uh, if you could just put this in a track form. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. Um, see, there's a false teaching out there called contact points. Have you heard that thing? And, and uh, or, Oral Roberts uh, promoted that, and he, he uh, I even used to have in my um, uh, file drawer a little, a little, uh, plastic pouch of water that, that was sent out from the fountain at ORU by Richard Roberts with a letter saying that if you took, and, and there was a warning, do not drink. <laughs> so you have spiritual water from the fountain at ORU. And, and he said, if, you could, if you're short on money, you take this water and anoint your billfold with it. And if, and if, you're, and if you're sick, you might want to anoint your head with it. And, and so now... The reason, what's wrong with that is it, it, it's implying it's more of a magic approach than just a sovereign God who heals because, uh, you know, according to his own will. And 
so those people say, well, why anoint with oil then? If, if God doesn't need a contact point, why anoint with oil? Well, because anything God ordains is something to do. Okay? I don't know why God ordained that we, if anybody's sick, you call the elders and you anoint with oil and pray for them. Okay? But he did. So we're always safe doing what God ordained that we do. And uh, you, you could say, well, why do we need the Lord's Supper? You know, we can very well just preach a sermon that reminding people of the Lord's death until he comes. And uh, why, why, do we, why do we need that? Especially if you're like us and you don't believe in transubstantiation. Well, we do what God ordained. Okay? It's called ordinances. What God has ordained is what we should do. And if God says to us, if you, here's what I've called you to do. To gather around the Lord, the apostles' teaching, breaking bread, prayer, and fellowship. If that's what the Lord told us to do, that's His ordained means of grace. And so if we do what He told us to do in faith, that's where God meets us. Does that make sense? So the laying on of hands is primary, primarily for ordination or showing approval for someone's ministry and not a, a, you know, a magical contact point type of thing. Remember, uh, Robert used to also say you could go put your hand on the TV for a contact point? <laughs> Literally. Put it, put it right here. And, and so we need to be careful not to dip into pagan thinking. God, God will meet us. Yeah, uh, to Cindy. We've got a new mic man today, and he's, he's being trained in. <laughs> I, I have two comments, uh, questions. Okay. One, um, is there any evidence that the practice of anointing with oil might have been related to the use of therapeutic essential oils back in those days? And secondly, um, perhaps the, the laying on of hands was used because when Jesus healed people, even if they had contagious diseases, he touched them because there's something healing about being touched. Well, in Jesus' case, he wasn't concerned about becoming unclean. We talked about that in Luke. I have uh, read the commentaries and the evidences about James, and, and I think the evidence is against that this was just a natural healing process. For one thing, if all it was was oil that was medicinal, what do you need elders for? The oil wouldn't be any different whoever put it on. The person could put it on themselves. They wouldn't need an elder for that. So the elders would be the representatives of the church that God has authorized. And so, in my opinion, I think it was a symbolic act. Um, and I did research. Have you researched that in James, Ryan? Yeah. You know, all, all Christians have an, an anointing, meaning they are part of the whole plan of God when they receive the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And there may be links to that when this sign of anointing. Yeah. I think it's a, a sign. But then we also uh, believe that's how we understand communion. Not as a 
uh, actual turning into the body and the blood, but communion is a sign of the Lord's body and blood that was shed once for all. Yes? My thought is that isn't, aren't we vessels that, whereas God works within us to do certain things, uh, in, 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 um, how do you say, in order or in the level of his body of Christ? Because it tells you in the Bible that some of us are, if you are teachers, teach. If you are preachers, preach. You know, and so on. If you're gifted with healing, you know, as far as our gift and talent. So, God's, we, God can work within us if we are his vessel to do some certain things of his will, can't he? Okay, it's sort of like the passage where it talks about gifts of healings. That's in 1 Corinthians 12. Um, trying to remember what I had determined. It was a plural, gifts of healings. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how, I'm not sure what, they, what Paul meant by that. Perhaps there are some people that are uh, especially called to minister in healing, but uh, I'm not so sure these guys on TV are yet. Okay, especially this Robert Tilton, you know, wants your money. Oh, Cheryl. <laughs> see, you see, you got a, you not only have a job, you have exercise. Um, when Jesus was raised from the dead, at one point, didn't he just breathe on the disciples and then say something like, be filled with the Spirit? Receive the Spirit. Yes, that was in John chapter, what was that, 20 or 21? Yeah, he said he breathed on them, said receive the Holy Spirit. I think the breathing on them was, again, a symbolic action. Well, that wasn't our topic, but I uh, wanted to share. Uh, I, may, I may do this again, because some of these emails I get from around the world are very interesting and very astute and very good questions. Okay? We were in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse... Well, we, were, we spent almost our whole, our whole time, actually, in verse 10... And there were still some cross-references we hadn't got to. But it's talking about appearing before the judgment seat of Christ, the bima. Bima or bema, it says in the Greek, uh, which is a judicial bench. And so we pointed out that this was for Christians, and it was, it was a different judgment than the great white throne judgment in Revelation, where everyone whose name is not in the book is assigned a place in the lake of fire. This is for rewards or deeds done in the body. And then we also pointed out last week that according to 1 Corinthians 3, um, there, there is a, a degree of reward depending on how faithful Christians live. And so they may be building with wood, hay, and stubble, and it's all burned up, but they're still saved, according to 1 Corinthians 3. Or they could be building with gold and, uh, and, and precious stones and, and silver, and they would therefore be rewarded accordingly. And we also looked at a bunch of passages last week about degrees of judgment. Okay? So, the bottom line, I'm going to summarize what we learned last week. It does matter what you do. Okay? There's no valid uh, version of Christian doctrine that ends up being antinomian. Antinomian means against the law. Okay? And it matters how, how we live our life and how obedient we are to the Lord. Now, a couple more passages. Lawrence, could you read Psalm 96, 10 through 13? Uh, Denise, do you mind reading, even though you're a visitor? <laughs> Welcome, by the way. Um, if you could read Acts 17:31, and then Gretchen. 
<laughs> Are you ready? <laughs> Busy writing there. Romans 6, 12 and 13. And then Carla. Romans 14, 10 through 12. And Joanne. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. And Dick. Colossians 3, 24 and 28. Okay, Psalm 96, 10 through 13. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world also is firmly established. It shall not be moved. He shall judge the peoples righteously. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar and all its fullness. Let the field be joyful and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the woods will rejoice before the Lord. For he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the whole world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. Okay, this says the Lord is coming. He will judge the whole world with righteousness. God is the righteous judge. And all humans, whether saved or lost, will still give account for the deeds done in the body. Amen. All right? Now, um, Acts 17.31. For, for he was set... He has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Yeah, I love that verse. Okay, so Jesus was raised from the dead, and he's going to be uh, the one who judges, according to John chapter 5. And so everyone's accountable to Jesus because the proof has been given once for all through his resurrection. The most important sign that whereby we must believe and must be saved. And this is the one sign that Jesus promised. Now, there's more signs. Okay, if you read in the book of Acts, there's a number of signs that happen through the hands of the apostles. Okay? And God can still do miracles. Right? But there's only one sign He promised that He would do. And so if somebody's going to obligate God to a sign, he, he's, not, he's only promised to give, him, give one sign. And remember what he said, only one sign will be given to this perverse generation, the sign of Jonah, who was three days in, in the belly of the fish, and then he came out, so shall the Son of Man be three days in the earth, and, and then uh, be raised. And so that passage that Denise read says that that makes every human, the fact of Jesus' resurrection from the dead bodily, that happened before witnesses who proclaimed this and has been written for all peoples to know, that's, that sign makes every human accountable to God. Every human's accountable because of the resurrection. And if we say, well, that's not good enough, God has to do another sign? He's not obligated to do anything more than that. <laughs> yes? Uh, there's a mystical way of interpreting Scripture uh, via signs and wonders. And yet here you've just expressed a biblical um, uh, admonition to look at what Jonah did as a sign, as a metaphor, as an allegory to what, you know, the, the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yet within the realm of these, uh, uh, the uh, Lateran and all the rest of these uh, heretical churches, they interpret just about everything in a mystical way. Oh, okay. All right. Well, uh I would say on that one, we would not know that Jonah was a sign of the resurrection of Christ had he not told us. 
Okay? And uh, that's how we know it. I don't know that just reading Jonah would have led us to that conclusion, but Jesus is perfectly capable of interpreting his own scriptures. All right? But, I, uh, but we need to find the author's intent. Now, um, Romans 6, 12, and 13, was that it? Gretchen? Yeah, that's it. Um, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourself to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And I've got a note here, uh, instruments is, are, means weapons. Okay. So... Having, in Romans 6, you have the, the, the analogy of the death, burial, or resurrection of Christ that is analogous to having been baptized in water, I believe, where we were buried and then came out. And because we, are, we died to our old life, and because we have been raised uh, in newness of life, Paul argues that our members or our our persons, the things that God's given us and are in the body, are to be presented to God as instruments of righteousness rather than sin. So Christians are to live in a way that would bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ. It's our obligation to do so. And it's only right because the Holy Spirit's at work in us. Now, Carla, has Romans 14, 10 through 12? But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Yeah. In Romans 14, it's a warning about uh, uh, bringing somebody into the church and then judging that person concerning their convictions about disputable matters. And Dick and I did radio series on that, which, by the way, some of you asked about this. For years, all we had was up to Romans 11. And so people said, well, where's the rest of Romans? Uh, we want to study Romans 12. We want to study Romans 13. So we went back into the recording studio, which is my family room, <laughs> and we finished Romans 12, 13, 14, 15. And those are now on the TwinCityFellowship.com website under the Bible study section. And so you can go back and get that. And we, I thought, uh, Dick, uh, I thought we had a very interesting discussion on Romans 14 in particular. 15 took four sections. Yeah, 15 as well. But in 14, we talked about how the, the, it's always going to be the case that Christians have different scruples from one another about certain things. And Paul gives in several of them in there. One of them is some people eat only vegetables and other people eat meat. And, and that's true today. There are people that won't eat any meat. And uh, there are other people like me that like a big, juicy steak on the grill. <laughs> um, and... I heard one person say, well, eating meat won't send you to hell, uh, uh, but it might get you in heaven quicker. 
<laughs> well, okay. <laughs> but anyhow, Romans particularly says don't act as judges about uh, days, the celebrating days, about food, and various things. And so we discuss that. But in the middle of that, the passage that Carla just read, comes this thing about God is the final judge, so don't set yourself up to be the judge of things that aren't clear in the Scriptures. God will take care of His own servants, and he'll, he'll, there'll be a judgment and account given. And it could be that God doesn't really care whether we eat vegetables or something else. Now, all of a sudden, I'm feeding back. Uh, uh, Dick, while I'm fixing my sound, or Joe, read 1 Corinthians 4 or 5. Let me just take this Therefore, balance. do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Yes, that's 1 Corinthians uh, 4 and verse 5, and that's a very important passage. Take note of that, 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 5. I wrote an article on this a while back about, what was it called again? I don't know. I, I dealt with the judging, what, what we can and can't. Yeah, it was about what you can judge and what you can't judge. Because there's a lot of verses that tell us we must judge, and then we got other verses that tell us not to judge. And so people ask, well, okay, uh, what am I supposed to do? I don't know whether I'm supposed to judge or not. And so I wrote an article in and just categorize all those verses based on whether the ones where he told us to judge and the ones where he told us not to judge, and then analyze what the issues were. And here's the, uh, let me give you the real simple answer. We must judge what we can know, and we must not judge what we cannot know. Now, what we can know is what the Bible says and what's true and what's moral or immoral or right or wrong. But what we can't not, what are, what's one thing we cannot know that we just heard in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 5? What does it say? The motives of the heart. Don't go on judging before the time. Because that's God's judge, judgment at the end. Because we don't know the motives of somebody else's heart. Now, what was going on in Corinth, okay, that Paul was correcting with that passage was this. They were thinking they knew who were the greater teachers and apostles and spiritual leaders. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter. And they had these personality cults based on who they thought the greater person was that, that they admired, or the greater teacher, or the greatest spiritual leader. And some of the ones they admired were actually false apostles, as we find out in Second Corinthians. But what Paul was saying is that's something you can't know. Okay, you may think that this uh, one preacher who sounds very eloquent is going to be great, greatly rewarded by God, and somebody else that you don't think is so great is not as good. We don't know these things. We're judging before the time what we don't know, and, and uh, we can't make these judgments. What we got to judge is what's biblical and what's not biblical, not who's the greater preacher, who's. Uh, who's got the better motives and things, because we just can't see those things. All right? So that's what that verse was about. Colossians 3, 24 and 28. I'll probably have to sell my Bible because I don't have a Colossians 3, 28, but we'll work on that. Okay? It's 24 and 25. All right. Well, why? I can't write. <laughs> just having a little fun with you. Okay, we'll start with 23. See, now I'm embarrassed. 
No, it was no. a trick. I just, I just wanted to fool you to see yeah. if you had, you're on your toes. Thank you. All right. You've accused me. 24 and 25. Let's yeah. try the ones that are actually in the Bible. You've accused me before of buying my Bible on sale. Okay. Whatever, I'll start with 23. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. All right. Right on topic, exactly what we're talking about. Number one, do your work heartily. And who do you do it heartily for? The Lord. And do any of you know that that's a very helpful idea when you're working in the workplace? I see that hand. Because sometimes you feel unappreciated when you're doing your work. Bob, I'm going to have to ask you to stop because I thought it was safe. I'm preaching on household rules today. Oh, no. Uh, submitting to wives and husbands. And I thought, there's no way we're going to have overlap. So please stop talking because we're doing <laughs> an right. application for you right. right now. All right. I've got to take his whole sermon before he ever gets... All right. Ryan will be preaching on this. Enough said. <laughs> Well, you know, this happens every time he preaches. I get in here and start talking about what... And I didn't see your notes, did I? Okay, Diane Bukowski. I was asked a question this week that I couldn't satisfactorily answer. If there's, in fact, judgment and rewards, doesn't that automatically mean that we... Be... If we're looking for a reward, we become pietists? Um... Okay, the question was, you know, does that make us, I remember I just wrote an article on pietism. If you're looking for a reward, are you a pietist? Um, these, uh, these, are, these verses are warning us more than they are dangling an apple in front of us. If I, if I may look at, or a carrot, what do they, what do they used to use for the donkey? And um, because there's not enough detail to... Uh, to know exactly what it even is. What is it going to be like to be in heaven and one's rewarded more than another? I don't know. We, we don't, there's not enough detail to know what it is. And the warning is that your works don't get burned up, not that you're better than anybody else. Okay? So the fact that there's rewards and that our deeds matter is more of a warning to not be antinomian than it is an enticement to be holier than thou. Because, for one thing, the way you end up thinking that you're better than somebody else and a pietist is if you think you can know these things before the time, like we said. Don't go on judging before the time. So I don't know that I'm holier than anybody else. I'm, I'm, I seriously doubt it. Uh, that, it's, it's a dumb way to think. It really is. It's the worst thing you can do is start thinking and comparing yourself to one another. And uh, what's more important is that I would like that I was a little less unholy before God. I would like to get more like Jesus. And I think that's true for all Christians, not just certain elite ones. If you want to see pietism, I'm reading a book, Getting Ready for uh, Faith at Risk and for the Trip to Barbados, called The Final Quest by Rick Joyner. And I'm telling you, that takes pietism to a worse level than I've ever seen anywhere. 
This guy is the most elitist person I've ever seen in his life. He's climbing the mountain into heaven, and all the rest of the Christians are sitting underneath demons being vomited on by vultures. It's unbelievable. This is the most ungodly, wicked thing I've ever read, written by a Christian. So be forewarned. That is, uh, according to this guy, being in Christ means nothing for you. You're just likely to be killed by demons and uh, hauled off and barfed on. It's not a very pretty picture. And see, there's even worse things than that, but I'm not going to talk about them in Sunday school. Okay. I was just going to comment that as Christians, um, usually when we're, our focus is on serving God, we're not thinking about um, how good we are or, or the right things that we're doing. I mean, if you even think of the passage in Matthew when he's commending those on his right hand for giving a water and drink, you know, when did you do? When did we do this, God? You know, they're not even aware that they've they've done anything, you know, right before him. But it's just in focusing on who God is and, and wanting to serve him, that that just happens naturally. And so the, the goal isn't to prove yourself to God or to prove how good you are. It's just to serve him because he's worthy of it and Amen. the rest takes care of it. I, Carl, very good. I, that's a very good passage, Matthew 25. The, the people that did the right thing didn't even know they did it. They were so unconscious of trying to be better. Back there, and then Bill had something too. And there's also the story about going to the feast and not taking the higher seat and sitting down, and then the Lord will bring you where he wants you to be. Yep. Yeah, it's better to be promoted than demoted. (laughs) Yeah, that's in Luke. I can't wait. There's so much good stuff in Luke, I can't wait to get to it. There's a special class of uh, pietism called... Radical pietism or German radical pietism, and that's where Joyner fits in. He's basically uh, uh, reintroducing uh, Count von Zinzendorf's Moravian uh, realm version. Yeah, yeah, that Moravians are a good example of of that sort of uh, uh, you know, the radical Bome, right? Uh, Jane Lead be the ultimate pietist radical. Okay, uh, that's it for that. Let's, let's get into verse 11 here. Therefore, knowing now the, the, the therefore is pretty obvious here. It's not a hard interpretive issue. What's the therefore? Therefore, <laughs> because we're going to be before the judgment seat of Christ. Because we're going to be one day before the judgment seat of Christ. Because of that, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also to your conscience. Now, Paul's talking about himself again here. Remember, much of 2 Corinthians is Paul's self-defense against the super-apostles who had convinced some of the church that Paul was not a very good apostle, and he was inferior, that he wasn't spiritual, that he didn't have the same level of visions that they did, and so on and so forth. We talked about that earlier when we began in 2 Corinthians. But Paul is clear about one thing, that he himself, knowing the fear of God, knowing that he's going to give an account as an apostle, he is uh, forthright about the truths of the gospel, and, uh, and that means everything to him. So when it talks about persuading men, there's either meaning this, Paul tries to persuade the unbelieving about the truth of the gospel, or 
He's trying to persuade the Corinthians about his own integrity. Or both. Because what he's saying is that if I, he said earlier, how gospel's head is hid to the ones that are blinded by Satan, not because I did anything adulterating it, I didn't do anything with craft, but I was manifest to people's conscience. I proclaimed the word of Christ, and nobody's going to miss it because Paul preached it in an unclear manner. So that would be persuading men. But then he's trying to persuade the Corinthians that, that he's not a false teacher like some people are claiming that he is. So, uh, knowing the fear of the Lord. Now, the fear of the Lord here is a, maybe this context will help us interpret that phrase. It's an genitive in the Greek, it's an objective genitive, obviously. If it was a subjective genitive, it would be the fear that God has. But God isn't fearing a, a, a being that fears. So it has to be objective of genitive means God is the object of fear. All right, so we fear God. That's what that genitive means. You know, there's a passage like that that the word of faith people misinterpret. There's a genitive in Mark that they interpret to be uh, the faith of God. And they say that God has faith rather than the object of our faith. Objective genitive, we have faith in God. They, they, they interpret it to be a subjective genitive, and they say the faith of God. And they say that God used this faith principle to create the wor- world through spoken words because God had faith in his own words. And therefore, if we also have enough faith, we can create things with our own words, by having faith in our own words. But there, as I, I studied this back in the 80s, and I, and I pointed out that if you're going to interpret the faith of God as an ob- subjective genitive, then you need to do the same thing with a, be consistent with the fear of God and say that God has fear. And they would be aghast to say that because to them, any kind of fear at all is a sin. And they say that Job got everything he deserved because he had fear. In spite of what obvious says in Job. Uh, who was... Oh, Doug. Doug's got... The terror? Okay. Knowing the terror of the Lord. Um, I don't know that that's uh, how we're to take that. I mean, that the term phobos could certainly be uh, translated horror. But remember, we're talking about the judgment seat of Christ for the Christian. Right? And the judgment seat of Christ will receive um, uh, recompense for deeds in the body is not a horrifying thing like the great white throne judgment would be. All right? So I'm interpreting this as an objective genitive and that God is the object of the fear, but the fear here would be, I would say, reverential awe. That God is, is, is to be reverenced and, and, yes, it's true, knowing we're going to be the judgment seat of Christ, we should care about what we do. It should matter. It should be important to us, right? So we should show reverence to God and want to live in a way that we won't bring dishonor to his name. But I don't know that terror is the nuance in this particular context. I mean, there are passages where terror would be the right translation. Okay. Uh, Phobos. Fear. Yep. Okay. All right. 
Now, you know what? Did you say that was the King James? Now, see, anytime, just about any time I disagree with even one translation of, uh, out of the King James, I get an email from one of the King James only. <laughs> and they're going to be telling me, because uh, uh, they, they don't believe any single word in the King James can co- possibly be the wrong translation of anything. They, because the King James itself, as it is, is, uh, well, whatever. We don't believe that. Go ahead. Uh, I was thinking, is another way of saying that is to give God his acknowledgement or um, his, you know, just let him have his position or that authority that he has over you. Yeah, take, take that, seriously take his seriously authority. Take seriously of what he has to say. Yeah, take seriously his authority as God and that he is the rightful judge. All right. So, so knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. And, but we are made manifest to God. Now, that's in the perfect tense. And, and so he's taking his stand on the gospel itself. And everything is seen by God. And Paul is... Uh, taking his stand on the fact that he has faithfully proclaimed the gospel and persuaded people of it and not uh, got off track as far as what he's called to do. In this section, by the way, in this bigger section of 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 15, the theme is boasting in the gospel and not boasting in self. Oh, Bert. Yeah, I was just going to mention that... Uh... If the King James was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. Okay. Thank you, Bo. Thank you, Bert. That was good enough for Paul, yeah. All right. But boasting in the gospel. Yeah, yeah, but now, now you get the emails. All right. Um, being made manifest or uh, to be open before God and to be seen and so on. Okay. In uh, Revelation uh, 20, 14 and 15, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. I always preach the terror of the Lord because the terror of the Lord is on the lost. And they will be in hell. There is terror. Not for us. Right. But there should be a kind of a reverence, the knowing that we know the terror of the Lord. Like Israel, tremble before the mountain. They trembled even before Moses, whose face was lit up. They couldn't look at it. So we do have the fear of the Lord. We should. When we think of hell, we can't even think on Him. It's so awesome. We wouldn't even wish it on our worst enemy. So we preach the full counsel of God. And mm-hmm. there is the terror of hell. We preach it. It's not thunder today. It's just all love, love, love. Well, the full council is preaching the terror of hell and the terror of the Lord on those. They brought it on themselves. They brought the terror of God on themselves by rejecting the gospel. And there is terror for eternity and suffering. Yeah, I understand. But my point is that in this context, it's talking about the believer's judgment. Yeah. Believers should be so encouraged because they know. Yeah, I know. I know. And and, and, and by the way, you're right. In, In other passages, like in Hebrews... Where it says, where it's warning apostates, then it is talking about terror. There, there's a certain, it says there's no longer, what does it say? There's the uh, Hebrews 10. Yeah, fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Yeah. 
<laughs> All right. We are made manifest in also. So God sees Paul and his ministry, and, and God is going to be the judge, and, and Paul's willing to stand on the gospel. All right? He's not wanting to compare himself with others. And well, that'll come up in 2 Corinthians 10. We're warned not to do that. And so nobody, no Christian should ever start trying to figure out whether they're more holy than some other Christian. And no preacher should ever start thinking whether he's better or worse than some other preacher. Because we can't even know these things. Well, God knows. But we can know whether the gospel is being proclaimed the way it should be. And that's what Paul was taking a stand on. He may not be the greatest guy in the whole world, but his gospel is powerful. Amen. Okay? And so that's where we're at, we the gospel. And we are made manifest also in your consciences. Uh, in other words, Paul has nothing to be ashamed about as far as how he uh, treated this Corinthian church. Um, and the, the fact is that he has to because they've been listening to the super apostles who are questioning him. Now, let me give out some uh, passages that we could study in context. And uh, Lois, 1 Corinthians 4 4, and Tim, Matthew 10 28, Mary, Mark, what? I can't write that down. Right. Slow down. 1 Corinthians 4 4. Matthew 10, 28. Mark 8 for Mary, 35 to 38. And Diane, do Luke 12, 5. And I have more, but we'll start with those. Okay, the first one is 1 Corinthians 4, 4. For I know nothing by myself, yet I am I not hereby justified, but he that judgeth, judgeth me is the Lord. Right. In 1 Corinthians 4, there was this issue again of who's the better apostle and I'm a, you know, and so on. And Paul says, the Lord judges. There's things that God judges that we can't. Right? We, got obje- we can judge the objective teaching that we hear, whether it's biblical or not. But we can't judge hidden motives and we can't judge spiritual hierarchy or spirit, who's the greater Christian. Because we'll probably we'll be, it's guaranteed we'll be wrong. The least will be the greatest. The people that have never been seen or known, uh, are, and, and have done many things for the Lord in secret, and are getting no accolades, are most likely to be those highly rewarded in heaven, Amen. and not some guy on TV. But you never know. <laughs> Okay, Matthew 10, 28. It would be helpful if I was reading from 10 instead of 11, I guess. Yeah, Matthew 10, 28. Yeah. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Be afraid of the one who can kill both soul and body in hell. This is basically, very simply, fear God, not man. I shall not be afraid. What shall man do unto me? I think that's in Hebrews. Okay, then um, Mark eight thirty-five to 38. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. 
What good is it for man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes to his Father's glory with the holy angels. Okay, uh, that's very clear, isn't it? Very, very clear. This whole world wouldn't even be worth gaining the entire world. I remember here, MacArthur, I think, said that in his book, uh, 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 what was it? Hard to believe. Hard to believe. He said, if you did gain, if you literally could gain the whole world and lose your soul, it would be a bad deal. You can take that literally. It would be a bad deal. Because the world passes away and the lusts thereof. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. That's in 1 John 2. Okay, and then uh, Luke 12, 5. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Wow. <laughs> now they're going on the radio saying that hell is bad advertising for God. Have you heard that statement? Yeah. Yeah. Hell's bad advertising for God. Well, it seems to me if God was worried about the advertising, Jesus wouldn't have been talking about hell. Okay? He wasn't too worried about people. Yeah, they were offended at Jesus' teaching, but he, he spoke what people needed to hear so that they could flee from the future judgment into the hands of a loving God only through the gospel, through Jesus Christ who died and was raised on the third day. Okay, now, uh, more verses. Why don't we start over here with Floyd? Floyd, do you want to do one? Um, Luke 16:31. And then Jerry, Acts 18:4. And Doug, Acts 19:46. And the next one is a real long section, so we'll have to do that together. Let's start with Luke 16:31 when you get to it. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Okay, and I know what that is. Um, that, he's, the passage says, this was the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man is in torment. And he said, let, let me come back and warn my brothers that this place is real. And Jesus said to them, they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, the Scriptures. If they don't believe those, neither will they believe if a man rises from the dead. And there's other passages like that. We're studying John on Thursday night. Remember that one where uh, Ryan in John 5, where he says, you search the Scriptures because you think in those you have life, but they speak of me? Now, he's not denying... I've heard uh, people say that that's proof that, we should, that we're going to be bibliolaters if we say the Bible. But that's not what that verse is saying. It's not warning against searching the Scriptures. It's warning against not believing Jesus. Okay? And the Scriptures do speak of Jesus. So it was an ironic rebuke. You search the Scriptures, and if you would have read better, you would have read in them that they spoke about me. And so the Scriptures are pointing to Christ. But if you... Yeah, it's true. You could love the Scriptures... And not come to Jesus. Right? The, the Jehovah Witnesses do that. Or so they say. 
They say they love the Bible. They say it means what it says. But they won't come to Christ. They redefine Christ as a created being, so the Christ of the Bible they won't come to. But the Scriptures aren't the problem. It's unbelief, right? Okay. So, uh, Acts 18.4. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. And was reading, reasoning in the Sabbath, trying to persuade. Here's our word, remember? We persuade men. So Jesus would go into the, the synagogue and reason, showing evidence that Jesus is the Christ. That was his um, uh, typical approach. And uh, he was trying to persuade them that this was the truth. Okay, and then Doug, Acts 19.46. That's what it says here. <laughs> okay. You got to be kidding me. Well, I was having a bad day when I wrote these notes. I keep giving people verses that don't exist. Well, I guess you can't very well read it then, can you? And, and mine is a new is uh, King James. Well, then, okay. All right, all right, all right. It must be, it must be right. I'm, I'm sorry. You know, I, I, I get these things out of. Uh, off my computer and I right click and it shows me verses and I decide the ones I want and then I, then I go write it down. I'm, I'm, I don't know what I wrote there. That's what it says, so I was wrong. Um, I'll tell you what, being how you're just so anxious to read, why don't you look up Galatians 1.10 and read that, Doug. <laughs> Galatians 1 and verse 10. For do I now persuade men of God, or God or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Okay, that's a good good point. Do you, are you going to persuade men or please men? If you're trying to please men, you're not a good servant of Christ. How many of you know that the gospel isn't popular in its native form? <laughs> it isn't. It, it, is, it is not. It's not popular as it is. It offends people. And that's why there's always a temptation to not want to tell the full terms of the gospel because it's, it's really saying that everybody's a lost sinner and that, and that judgment is real and that our sins were so bad that Jesus uh, it took the blood of an innocent man, fully human and fully God, Jesus, it took his blood... To avert God's wrath against our sin. Amen. That's a substitutionary atonement. That's what, that's what we believe. And it's, it's offensive to the Jews, according to 1 Corinthians 1, not 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I think about verses 21 and 24. And it's foolishness to the Greeks. In Athens, they laughed at Paul, they mocked him. They thought the idea that God raising a man from the dead was absurd. Now, why would some Greeks think that that's absurd? Well, some of them were these dualists who thought the material realm was evil. So it's absurd to raise somebody back in a body when that's what the problem was to start with, according to their thinking, the body. But the gospel is the gospel, and it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. And so Paul sought to persuade men, and what he tried to persuade them of was the gospel itself. Now, next week, we'll start with verse... No, next week, 
I have, we have, I have a special speaker. Being how I am speaking so often over the weekend at Faith at Risk, and I'm going to continue. My Sunday morning sermon next week is going to be also a topic that goes along with the Faith at Risk conference. And for Sunday, for this class, we have a special guest speaker, my dear friend, Oral Steinkamp. And he's spoken for us before, and he is going to be here from uh, near Renville, where he's from. And Oral will be speaking on the topic of the Latter-day Apostles, and he is going to give biblical material from the New Testament to prove that the apostles were unique, that the authoritative apostles were unique. So that's Oral's topic for uh, next Sunday. And, and the reason I asked him to speak on that topic is that I'm supposed to speak on it down in Barbados, so I'm going to have him uh, teach me. <laughs> Make sure I got my uh, my back straight before I go to Barbados. I'm going to listen to Oral talk on the topic, and then I'm going to be speaking that Sunday morning uh, on a topic about how you can discern a true work of the Holy Spirit. How do you know that you're seeing a true work of the Holy Spirit or not? That's going to be my topic, and then there's also going to be four lectures on Saturday for Faith at Rest. So uh, please help with the chairs and have time of fellowship.